throughout our study in the book of Romans, Paul has been presenting us with a debate. He's been uh, putting across a justification for faith in Jesus Christ, the reason why. And he started off with his affirmation of belief in the gospel message way back in Romans 1, that Jesus died and rose again. And then what he does uh, throughout the rest of the chapters, he tries uh, to uh, preempt the questions that people may have and produces answers. And from those answers then would come further anticipated questions. And for a number of weeks, we looked at sin, the tough going that it was in the early chapters. And we looked at that and how it affects our relationship with God. And from sin, we moved into uh, consider God's righteousness His righteousness revealed to us through Jesus Christ. Then we consider the purpose of the law. Again, almost getting bogged down a little bit again and trying to understand what Paul was trying to say, that the law is only here to reveal sin and how we can only be saved from the penalty of death by believing that Jesus Christ is the one who atoned for our sins. And I don't know if you've been noticing, but there's been one thing missing in the majority of Paul's teaching. We touched on it a little bit last week, but we fully embrace it this week, and that is the Holy Spirit. Paul, to this point, hasn't really gone into any depth in thinking about the work and the power of the Spirit and what happens in the life of a believer. So, tonight Paul opens with the wonderful truths about the Holy Spirit. David Coffey remarks that the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit makes discipleship a possibility. Life in the Spirit is the birthright of every believer and the lifeblood of the church. So, if you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, your birthright tonight is the Holy Spirit within you. The birthright of every believer and the lifeblood of the church. That, in a nutshell is the Spirit, is the Holy Spirit. Of course, Paul, as Paul does, he will take 17 verses to get us to that in different ways, but of course still rich and full of what he wants us to learn about God's great love for us. And so we've read the first 17 verses, and those are the 17 that we'll be looking at. And as I said earlier, this passage, the start of Romans 8, is described as the Everest. It's the peak, it's the high point of what Paul is trying to communicate to us because he gives us a complete summary of what he has already said and he presents a clear understanding of the gospel message. And so verses 1 to 11 tell us how the Holy Spirit makes a new lifestyle possible and verses 12 to 17 tell us how the Holy Spirit assures us that we are members of God's family. So before we start, As it seems so frequent we do in approaching these passages, let's take a moment and let's ask for God's help as we try and work through what he wants to teach us. Father, we come again to ask for your help, asking that you will make the things that are unclear clear to us, that you will help us to engage and embrace what it is you want us to teach, what you want to teach us. And Father, whatever you teach us, I pray that you will give us the courage that we need to apply it to our lives. That it won't just be another moment where we say that was great, 
and a great message, and it's all true, but we will take it with us, and we will live it as you desire us. So be with us and help us as we think through these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul starts, verse 1, therefore. And every time we come to a therefore, uh, Paul is moving on from what he's just said, possibly a little bit of a recap coming up, but what's about to come is the cap on what has just happened. So he is saying that everything that he has presented, really since chapter 3, has been about what God has done through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And on this basis, he can confidently state that there is no need for those who are in Christ Jesus to be wretched wretched and helpless. And in verses 1 to 4, he proceeds to give details of God's rescue plan. And if there were ever four verses that you ever wanted to learn from Scripture, these are your four. These are them. In a nutshell, let me read them for you again, because as I've been mulling over them and reading them again and again, it's a nutshell of who we are. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. If you ever needed uh, a rallying of the troops, here you have it. No more are we condemned, but we are liberated and we are free. And these are some of the words I want to pick up on, uh, the words that Paul is presenting to us, and letting us think a little bit about what it means as we desire to follow Jesus Christ. So the first word is condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In our old lives, in the old life, the life that was dedicated to sin almost, in that it always wanted to sin and go the way of sin, the way of giving in to sinful desires, that whole way, we faced condemnation for those sins. Sin had to be punished. We would all agree that, that if somebody does something wrong, there's a consequence. So whatever we say is right, if someone goes against it, there must be punishment. And we would say the same about sin. Sin must be punished. And God has always made that clear to us. Throughout Scripture, sin was always punished. So sin was the thing that held us. It is the thing that condemned us. It was the thing that corrupted God's perfect creation. It came in and destroyed what was so perfect, and so it has had to be dealt with. And because of Jesus Christ, it has been dealt with. Followers of Jesus no longer face the condemnation of the sin in their lives. Christ has been the one-time sacrifice one and only time sacrifice that satisfied God's required punishment of sin. It's amazing. 
one act, but one great and mighty act, means that the finger is no longer pointed at any of us because it is removed from us because Christ has taken the penalty of our sins. We are no longer condemned if we are in Jesus Christ. And the second thing Paul mentions is this sense of liberation, of freedom that this, uh, this new life in Jesus brings. Those in Jesus have been set free by the law of the Spirit from the law of sin and death. And the law of the Spirit is not a presentation of rules and regulations, but it's a controlling power on our lives. That's what the law of the Spirit is. It's a controlling power in our lives. So the controlling power of God's Spirit is the thing that frees us. It frees us from the effects of sin. No longer do we feel threatened by sin. It can't hold us. Neither can the evil one if we are found in Jesus Christ because of the power of the Spirit that is at work within us. We've been talking for many weeks about sin. And Paul has painted a very clear picture of what sin is. But here, he says, we are no longer condemned. We are liberated and free from the ties and the strings that, that would bind us because of our sin. So let's take our first moment to stop. And let's think about this. Let's think about this, uh, taken from Romans to our lives today. As we think about the, the condemnation that we no longer face, and as we think about the liberation in Christ, what does this mean for us in our relationship with Jesus Christ as we desire day by day to live for him? What does it mean for you? What's, what's going through your head right now? Because I don't have the answers. I may help you a little in how I see things from my perspective. But how can we live this in our daily lives? For me, it means that there's a full recognition that we have salvation because of what Christ did at Calvary. It means that we, I understand fully everything that Paul has been teaching regarding our salvation. It doesn't come from us. It can't be from us. It has to be from Jesus Christ. So this new freedom and this no longer under this bondage of sin means that I can embrace my salvation every day that I live without fear. Nothing will grip me or hold me in fear because of what Jesus has done and the indwelling spirit that is within me. So what does this mean for you in your relationship with Jesus? But also, what does it mean for how we live tomorrow as we will face what we face? Well, yes, it continues to mean that sin doesn't have its grip. It has no power over us. But the problem is we will still be tempted by sin. It'll still influence us. It will still come at us in various guises and disguises. I don't know if you've discovered this as you've been going through your Christian walk, but Satan gets more subtle and subtle in his temptations as the years go by. So the problem is we will still face sin. So what does this freedom, this liberation mean for us? Well, it means that the effects of that sin will no longer condemn us. It means that we won't be punished for it. It doesn't mean that we choose to sin. 
And we must be very clear about this. It doesn't mean that we say, okay, I'm going to sin and God, you're in my back pocket and that's okay. Whenever I need forgiveness, I'll come to you and do whatever I have to do and it'll be all right again. We can't misuse God. We can't play God for the fool. But what it means is that we don't fear punishment, eternal punishment. We don't fear it in our lives if we fall and slide into sin because God has said through Christ we have no, there's no more condemnation and we are free and liberated. And Paul concludes these few verses by addressing the way that we live. He says that we live no longer according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is the one who is our guide, the guide of our our lives, and not the sinful pleasures of this world. And again, we need to stop for a moment. When we come to talk about the work of the Spirit, we recognize that within our denominational life, we don't address the work of the Spirit so much. So what does it look like? In many ways, the history of preaching in the Presbyterian Church has not gone too closely to, to what it actually looks like in terms of, of what the work of the Spirit is. So let's take a moment and think. What does it do? What does the Spirit do with us? The Spirit simply as we thought about at the very start with David Coffey's quote, the work of the Spirit, it drives us to holiness. That state uh, that uh, God desires us to be, continually striving for holiness. And John Stott describes holiness as the ultimate purpose of the incarnation and the atonement. The end God had in view when sending his son was not just our justification, or not our justification only through freedom from the condemnation of the law, but also our holiness through obedience to the commandments of the law. So God always had in view that we wouldn't just be justified, but that actually we would be holy. And in many ways, holiness can give us a negative thinking. Ever been called a holy Jew? I don't know if it's a Belfast-ism, but certainly in the country. If you ever went forward for anything, if you ever spoke at a scripture union group in school, or if you ever took the moral high ground in in genuine desire to be faithful to scripture, they'd point the finger and they'd call you a holy Jew. Maybe it's just a farmer's thing, I, I don't know. But I've had the finger pointed many times and been called the holy Jew. And so with that comes the, the negative idea that holiness is something that isn't good that it puts us above everyone else in a bad way, that it's a condescending look, that we're better than everyone else and we're looking down at them. That's the negative appearance of holiness and that's how the world sometimes sees it and sometimes the church is influenced like that as well. But true holiness, true holiness means that we are living a full life that God has always wanted us to live. It's allowing him to work in us with his spirit without fear of what others may say and also with a little bit of fear of what he might do because God is greater than anything we can ever imagine or dream. So the spirit sets a work in us that brings us into holiness, on that path of holiness and ultimately that is to draw us into closer fellowship with Jesus Christ. And as we start to to warm up to our, in our relationships with Jesus Christ and it gets warmer and warmer in that relationship with him, we will want to go to his word. And as we read and try to understand his word, 
so our holiness continues. Because we will be understanding more of Christ and of God and of the work of the Spirit. And then that will feed into our lives how we practically live. Not that we become suddenly holier than thou, but that we're simply God's people in the world that he created. We are who he always wanted us to be. But again, how do we recognize this? It's really a list of questions tonight as we try and tease this out. How do we recognize this work of the Spirit within us? Well, for me, I try to recognize the work of the Spirit by checking my thinking and my understanding of God's Word. As I read, I want to faithfully understand what God's Word says, not just as I come to preach or to teach, but also in my own time of devotion and study. As I read the Scripture, I need to check, am I being faithful to what it's really saying, or am I reading into it what I want it to say so that it makes my life more comfortable? So I check it by reading a commentary, or an article or a journal from a Christian magazine, or I talk to people about what it means to make sure that I have a good grasp of what God is saying. And I also try to recognize the Spirit's work by being held accountable. Accountable in how I live. Accountable in what I do. Making sure that the life that I profess is the life that is seen in the world. And so I have a friend who I contact every 10 days or so. And we ask each other the difficult questions that really we don't want to ask each other. But yet we know if we're to be faithful to the life we've been called to. We must be honest with the questions, those difficult questions. And you know, I've found in my life, and this is where last week's uh, thinking on the tension, I've discovered that I still live in this tension that I want to sin so much, especially when it comes to answering these questions, whether it be with a friend or before God, because I want to lie, because there's a pride thing within me. And I want to tell the little lie that doesn't make me look so bad, I need to be fully honest. I need to be open and truthful before God and in this structure of accountability. The Spirit, for me, this is how He works. This is how I recognize Him at work in my life, in my thinking and in my doing, as I try to understand God's way of life for me and I try to live it. I've experienced it this weekend. Uh, this weekend I've been speaking at a youth weekend uh, down in uh, Ross Trevor, and uh, the group came from Monaghan, and uh, it's uh, a group from Monaghan, a young people's fellowship, interdenominational, they meet together, they all come from very small churches, and they gather in Monaghan town every other Saturday, and so they were away on their weekend, and we were looking through Elijah, and learning from Elijah and what he, uh, the story of Elijah, we have to learn from that about God and about the things that God would have for us. And while we were there over the, uh, the weekend, it was a group who knew how to play hard, uh, quite literally, to three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. But they were also a group who knew how to engage with God. And over our times of talks and even around the coffee table just chatting through, the Spirit was at work in a way that I hadn't seen in quite a while in such a group very active in their thinking, very active in trying to get to grips with what God was doing in their lives, right there and then questioning and trying to discover God's way. Is that how it is for us? 
Are we engaging daily with the Spirit so that we will be who God wants us to be? Are we wrestling with the lives that we have, knowing that they can be much better in terms of relationship with Jesus Christ, so that we will be on that path of holiness and recognizing the Spirit's work in our lives? So that's Paul in the first couple of verses. So we'll move on to what he says in the rest. So verses 5 to 12 offer us a compare and contrast uh, to the two types of persons. And Paul presents the differences between someone living according to the sinful nature and someone living in accordance with the Spirit. And he sees one, uh, the one who is living according to the sinful nature as firstly having a mindset on what the sinful nature desires, secondly a mind that leads to death, thirdly a mind that is hostile to God, fourthly a mind that cannot submit to God's law, and fifthly those living in this way can never please God. It's a tragic picture. The odds are completely against them. If people who follow the sinful nature stay in that way, there is no hope, none whatsoever. But he presents the one living in accordance with the Spirit in two ways, just two ways compared to the five. Firstly, a mindset on what the Spirit desires. When they're living in the Spirit, their mind will be focused on what the Spirit desires. And secondly, a mind that leads to life and peace. So the five versus the two. And in the two, it seems to me that minds leading to life and peace are all the fulfillment that we need in our lives. Knowing that we will have eternal life and eternal destinations in heaven with God, but also peace. Peace in this world that will assure us that we are to that eternity, but also the peace of knowing that we will be in that eternity for its complete duration. Not that it has a duration, I suppose, in many ways. Eternity is what it is. It is that continual being in the presence of God. So for Paul, a life and a peace is what is all we need to be fulfilled. And he moves from the compare and contrast to focus to the reader now. So this was very uh, removed, that it's a general statement, but he moves in to say to the reader, the early church and to us today, he says that believers and followers of Jesus are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. He's doing what he does again. He keeps recapping and he keeps reinforcing. And this life in the Spirit means that we are both dead and alive at the same time. Verse 10 says that if Christ is in us, then our bodies are dead because of sin, because of the fall that we mentioned earlier in our prayers as we recognized our sinfulness. It ushered in suffering and death, and our natural bodies will die because of that. Adam and Eve, it's the consequence that we live because of their actions. It's the cycle of birth and decay that will take its course. Our bodies will cease to be someday. And they will return to the state from which they came. Ashes. Dust. But Paul quickly moves on. And he moves on to encourage us. Because he says that while we are dead because of the natural causes of sin, we are alive because of righteousness in the Spirit. And this is through Jesus. 
the one God revealed to us and revealed his righteousness to us. And God's rescue plan had to come through Jesus. We've said it already, there was no other way. It had to come through Jesus so that we would know that the best was given for us. And it was the best that he wanted for us. And this encouragement also comes with a promise. The promise that if the Spirit is at work within us, if it is the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, then we will receive mortal life, immortal life in eternity to come, a God-filled eternity. So a question that we've already asked needs to be answered again, and this time directly by us as individuals. We've looked at this lifestyle that the Spirit helps us to live by indwelling us, teaching us and nurturing us and bringing us closer to Christ, teaching us how we are to live. How can you, how can I experience the Holy Spirit as a settled, permanent presence in our lives and not as an occasional visitor? Does it mean a concerted effort in not only reading God's Word but taking time to study it? Does it mean taking time to chat through with someone what are the, the, learning, uh, the learning that we can have from God's Word? Does it mean searching out someone with whom we can be totally open and honest so that we are held accountable to the lives that we profess to live? And I have to say, it's tough. I've said it again already, it is tough. As I've tried to, to live out what I'm learning from Romans as I've been reading it, I struggle to be this person who desires to be a mature disciple because of the influence that sin has on my life. But the spirit that is at work within us is far greater than the sin that is in this world. God's righteousness fulfilled in Jesus is far greater than what the evil one has to throw at us. And we'll get there. Little bit by little bit, we'll get there. But what does it mean for us in this lifestyle that the Spirit leads us into? What does it mean on our part, the concerted effort that we need to have that fellowship and that communion? So let's look at the last few verses, verses 12 to 17. Paul moves on to coach us on how the Spirit assures us that we are members of God's family. Uh, Paul is making sure that everyone is with him uh, in this section because uh, he, only, he makes a reference to the effects of living again by the sinful nature. He wants to make it sure that before he moves on to this wonderful family life that God offers, we are certain of what it means to follow in the sinful nature. So he gets it over and done with and he says again, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. So Paul raises three things in the verses that follow as he introduces this greatest of all families that we can be part of. And the first is that the Spirit leads us to be sons of God. We're entered into this family if the Spirit is in us. And it's only when the Spirit is in us that this happens. When we accept Jesus, we are brought in to the family of God as sons and daughters of God. And Paul is very quick to make sure that we understand it's sons and not 
slaves. And it seems alien to us today that we even think about slaves. We haven't engaged with such things in our society in many generations. But we understand that as Paul was writing to this church in Rome, there was a mixture of society. There was the high of society right down to the slave and everyone in between. Paul has already taught that in Christ we are all one. And he wants to make sure that those who live a life of slavery, that they have it clear in their mind that they are sons of God. It means that we don't have a standoff relationship with God. We are engaged with him and he is engaged with us. It means that he loves us and brings us to his table and he gives us the best meal ever. It means that we are tucked into bed at night and read a story by God who loves us and gives us his name. The picture of what it's like to be a son or a daughter. That's what we're entitled to. That's where the Spirit leads us as we accept Jesus Christ into this life that is a son of God. And the second thing Paul highlights is that not only are we sons of God, but that we are God's children. This means that we have access to a strong relationship with him. And we see this because of the example of Jesus. And we looked at it um, a few weeks ago where Jesus introduced uh, the disciples to calling God Abba, Daddy. In my experience, it's only a child that is full of joy that runs up and calls to their father and calls them Daddy. It is a strong connection. It's an emotional connection. It's a connection where the child sees this father, this daddy as they call them, to be the strongest one in their world, the one who no harm can come to, the one who will protect them and cover them with their love. And so they're free in this casual way to call them daddy. And so it is with us. God has given us a casual interaction with him where we can call him as we approach him through his spirit. We can call him daddy also. So the spirit leads us into being sons of God, leads us into being children of God. And the third and the most powerful thing that Paul brings to our attention is that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. In other words, we are entitled to everything that is God's. We are entitled to his salvation. We're entitled to his glorious riches. And we are entitled to his home. We're entitled to eternity in heaven. And God doesn't take us on a wild ride. He doesn't string us along as if to say, come, come, and then all of a sudden pull a rug from underneath us and saying, only joking. God says, you're with me. And I will keep you. And I will give you everything everything that is mine because I have taken you as my son or my daughter. I've made you my child and I give you everything that is good for me. Paul doesn't finish there because Paul throws in a little two-letter word right at the very end. So he has built us up. He's built us up to understand what God has for us, but he drops in if. And so he wants to make it clear once again that all this is possible if indeed we share in his sufferings, that is Christ's, in order that we may also share in his glory. 
These things only come about if we are true followers of Jesus Christ. They only come about if we are willing to share in the sufferings of Jesus, if we are willing to face the difficulties and the scorn of this world, just as Jesus Christ did to ensure my salvation and your salvation. Because when we share in his sufferings, Paul's rationale tells us, and the truth of it is, we will also share in his glory. So we finish. We finish with four questions that help us to think as we go into this world and try and live out the life that he has called us to. My first question, are you living as a son or a daughter? Or are you living as a slave? Do you think that a relationship with God means that you do all of this that there's no contact or no sense of family with God? Are we letting uh, the little things that we think, again, coming back to what we've thought about over this past year about works saving us, are we thinking that we are a slave to God rather than a son or a daughter? Is it creeping in so subtly so that we think that we don't have the relationship with God that he promises us because we are not slaves. We are not minions of God. We are sons and daughters. And when we understand that we are sons and daughters and not slaves, the open freeness that we have in his family becomes ever so great to us. So are you living life as a son or daughter or as a slave? Secondly, are you in a casual relationship with God, or is it a formal, distant one? For many of us, I guess we've had this time in our lives where we thought that there's a certain way to approach God, and there's a certain language to use, and rightly so, that we have to have a healthy fear of God as our creator and also as the judge. But he has invited us, his children, to call him Daddy. simple word that in our lives can mean so much and says so much. Are we in a casual relationship with him where we know him as our protector, as the one who will beat up our bullies, as the one who will tuck us in and read us stories, as the one who will be our defender no matter what? Thirdly, do we fully grasp that the inheritance is ours? Every good thing from God is entitled to us because of what Jesus has done. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ, heirs of the promises of God. But do we grasp that it is for us and it is waiting for us because it has been promised? Because when we see that salvation uh, will come to its fullness in eternity, when we see that on the horizon, the lives we live will be different, vastly different because our focus will not be on what is here and now in the temporal things, but of what is ahead, what is in glory. And we will have the fullness of God as we do so, because we recognize his view of who we are and of this world that he created. And finally, are we sharing in the suffering of Jesus so that we can share in his glory? In our Western lives, we can be quite comfortable. We can be very comfortable, in fact, 
So much so that the thought of suffering for our faith and, and a little bit of discomfort for us, we, we let it pass us by. But are we suffering? Am I suffering? Are any of us suffering as we have witnessed through Open Doors and other organizations that share what believers around the world are suffering? Suffering the ultimate price, and that is death for their faith in Jesus Christ. But are we willing to take our stand and face the scorn and ridicule so that Christ will be glorified? And as we share in his suffering, so we will share in his glory. Folks, we finish this part of Romans 8. It throws once again to us questions that shape our lives. Things that make us stop and we need to think. They're truths that we agree with. They're truths that we know. I'm very aware that there may not be anything of a great shock or revelation in our learning together tonight. But in our reminding of it, how does it prompt us to live the lives that God wants us to live for his name? And for his sake. Let's pray. Father, as we think of the lives that you have called us to, we, we think of what it could be like. And we get two pictures. We get the picture that focuses us here on this earth and the sin that is around us that so easily influences us and the sin that so easily attacks us as we take our stand for Christ. We can also view it in the light of eternity where we see on the horizon what you have promised us as we enter into your family and enter into all the goodness that you have for us father sharpen our vision sharpen our focus so that we will have that view of eternity so that we can step forward in the confidence of knowing that you have the perfect way for us even though this life may be difficult, may we not dwell on that, but dwell and lovingly dwell on what you have ahead. Speak to us and make it clear to us. May we enter into everything you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.